This is the last sermon in our installment on the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to ask that we would pray the Lord's Prayer again as we begin this sermon. We're going to pray it from the Revised Standard Version this morning. We're going to pray it from the book of Luke that we just heard, which differs a little bit from the Matthew Version. And I'm going to ask, as you're able, to please stand and pray that with me. Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Please be seated. Now, that was the Revised Standard Version. A number of weeks ago, we talked about using a lot of different versions in your Bible study. So as we begin, let me just say a word about translations uh, when it comes to Scripture. Um, there are a lot of English translations. There are some that I prefer, some that I don't prefer. If you've been reading the Bible for any length of time, you maybe have the same opinion. Some that you prefer, some that you don't prefer. I'm of a mind, though, that there probably are a few English versions out there that might be in the category of subpar in how they were done. Uh, and I'm talking specifically translations, not paraphrases. That's a different category. Um, but generally speaking, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a bad one. What, what you have to do, just because I encourage you to study using various translations, is my philosophy of translations, first of all, is use them. So use a bunch. You're going to be okay doing that. And you have to understand the philosophy and what uh, the purpose of each of those translations. So I'll give you a couple examples. I use the New International Version to preach from because I think it reads well in English, and I think they've updated the language in a way appropriate to how we use language very well. Does it do everything perfectly? No, it doesn't. All translations make sacrifices. If I'm studying the Old Testament, Revised Standard Version. That's my go-to. Why? Because it does great stuff with the original language of the Old Testament. If I want to study the New Testament, New American Standard. They're doing different things, though. I think the New American Standard doesn't read very well for public reading. They're designed for specific purposes and specific philosophies and that sort of thing. So I just want to make that word of caution to you use as many as you can compare them contrast them you're gonna be better for it because you used multiple translations as you study scripture if you have more questions about that talk to me later because i could talk at length but that's not our sermon this morning i just wanted to make that note since we've talked about it and used different translations as we round out this sermon series on the lord's prayer we want to talk about the persistence of prayer and actually praying with any regularity the lord's prayer We've contended three things can happen when we pray the Lord's Prayer. First, that you pray like Jesus. Second, that you can discover the heart of God as you pray the Lord's Prayer. Just as we hear this passage from Exodus and this revelation of God and who God is, teach me who you are, Moses says, so I can know you. That's what we're asking of the Lord's Prayer as well. Teach me who you are, God, so I can know you, so I can discover your heart. That's the hope that we're getting out of the Lord's Prayer. And the third thing is that you can be transformed. But the transformation doesn't actually happen because we prayed the Lord's Prayer. The transformation happens because we've yielded ourselves to Jesus Christ and to his saving power in us through the cross. We have no power to save ourselves. Only Jesus can do that. But once we've done that, once we've yielded to Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, can start working within us. And things like the Lord's Prayer, as we pray that, that gives language to what the Holy Spirit is doing within us so we can understand deeper what it is that God wants from us and who God is shaping us 
to be. And so we talked about being transformed. Transformed to become what? Might be part of the question. And as I, I dwell on that this week, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 was one of the verses that came to mind where Paul says, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into what? Into his image. With ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's what's supposed to be happening. Now, on our own, without that transformation beginning within us, we come to God roughly like my dog comes to the back door right now in this season. She is a digger, and tis the season. So she's got three holes that she rotates between. Yesterday, there was a time when two of our kids were standing next to her as she was digging in the hole, panting away like I'm, I'm sending her out to hard labor, but she's having the time of her life. But what happens? She comes to the back door at the end of three hours of digging in this hole, which is doing no damage to anything except one little tree root that she likes to eat. And she comes to the door, and she's coated in dirt all over, pieces of root sticking out from the claws. Not so bad on a dry day, but on those days when the ground is a little muddy, what do I get at the back door? But a dirt-coated, mud-covered dog, and then what happens? Some kid lets, opens the door without wiping her off, and what do you have? A muddy dog who's excited to be in the house to greet everybody running around everywhere, and you have a mess on your hands on every possible surface. Because of the presence of sin within our lives, both the stuff that we caused and the stuff caused by others, we approach God initially like that. As a dirt-covered, mud-covered dog, basically, a person who's just coated in sin. And the first thing that God has to do is begin to clean us off, and that's the beginning of that transformation. That's what's going on, both inside and out, to be transformed to become the image of Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus Christ who both allows the transformation to occur at all, because we can't do it on our own. We are not able to do the cleanup process ourselves. But also Jesus then models what it's supposed to look like on the other side. If we want to know what holiness encased in human form looks like, we see it in Jesus. We're supposed to be transformed in the image of him. That's the Christian life. In a nutshell, what we're supposed to be, the transformation that's supposed to occur. As we then approach God praying something like the Lord's Prayer, there's an issue of trust that actually is embedded in the Lord's Prayer. And, and so just as we have friends in this life who, if we have a good day or a bad day, we can call them, and we don't even have to think twice about calling them. You have a bad day, and you could call a good friend, and they're going to be right there with the ice cream, right, ready to go. You can call a good friend and celebrate the joys and the things that go on. We wouldn't have to give it a second thought to call those people. Do we have to give it a second thought to call on God for that relationship that we should have as first nature? Do we trust that when we pick up the phone and call God that he's going to be on the other end is the real question. And if we trust that, there's going to be some persistence in our prayer towards God the Father. If we're not sure about that, it's going to take a lot more thought for us to approach God. Do we trust that he's there on the other end? That's really the key question here as we discuss persistence in prayer. And so I want to go back to the text. Let's go to Luke 11. I encourage you to find it right now. However you're reading your Bible these days. Luke 11, starting at verse 1. And we begin with the disciples with Jesus. Now, we covered the Lord's Prayer looking mostly at the text from the book of Matthew. 
which, as we noticed this morning, looks a little different than the one in Luke. Let's uh, remember that Jesus probably said the same thing multiple times. Uh, Jesus went from town to town, village to village, and he probably had what we'd call a stump speech in many of those places. He, he said the same thing. That's why we get sometimes the same parable told a little bit different. That's also why the disciples couldn't remember it so well. Jesus probably said it multiple times. They were also an oral culture. They remember things better than written cultures. So as we look at Luke 11.1, 1, the context is different. In Matthew, Jesus gives it in the context of a sermon. Here the disciples ask. Verse 1 says, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. So right there, there's something important. Jesus modeled to them prayer and a life of prayer. They spent their time around Jesus. They knew how he ate, how he slept. They knew how he prayed. What a blessing to be able to see that. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Now, in my years of ministry, I've had people come to me who are feeling far from God and removed and distant, and they want to rekindle that relationship. And one of the key things that we discuss is how to pray. I've had people ask me just very specifically, how do I pray? I don't get this thing called prayer. What do I do? How does it work? And I've got to confess, um, the disciples have an end. Even though they don't fully understand everything about who Jesus is yet, they ask him, hey, Lord, teach us to pray. But I was thinking this week, I was like, you know, I don't think I've ever actively counseled anyone to just plain ask God, how should I pray? I mean, have you ever done it? It, it just struck me this week. Well, that seems like the simplest first route. God, teach me to pray. Just like Moses does in the passage in Exodus. God, teach me who you are. God, why don't you tell me? You're the best source for this, for how to, how to have a conversation with you. Teach me to pray. I've counseled people and lived passively that the Spirit gives you the words and that kind of thing. I, I know I've encountered that myself and lived it. But Lord, teach me to pray. Isn't that an inclination we want to build within ourselves? God, teach me. What, what do you want from me? How do you want me to approach you? And one of the problems that can come with our approach to God in prayer, even in the most faithful of circumstances, is that we have pride and control issues that get in the way. So we, even in our faithfulness, go to prayer and, and meet in groups and meet individually and go to God, and we want to control the conversation. We want to dictate, in our faithfulness even, God, we think you're calling us to this, this, and this, and this, and this, and those are the things. We can't commit those to you for prayer. But instead of simply saying, God, I know what I want you to do, we also need that second breath of, but God, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do? Teach me to pray. And I think the Lord's Prayer, among many other truths that we get from Scripture, teaches us this one truth, that God gives us all we need to pray effectively. It's, if we ask, we're going to receive. The Lord's Prayer is one of those uh, things that we receive that can give us the template to help us pray effectively to God. And we can't forget how the prayer begins if we want to understand the key to the whole thing, our Father. That relationship is what we're trying to build as a child to the Father. And just like Jesus shows his disciples how to pray, so just like children learn from their parents or should what's right and what's wrong, so we should be looking to our Father in heaven for guidance in how to be his children and how to operate. Lord, teach us to pray. Now the disciples also say, oh, can you do it like John's disciples? 
while you're at it, God. And the prayer that Jesus gives is actually pretty common in some ways. It's called a Kadesh, but he modifies it. A Kadesh is still used today in Jewish circles, especially at funerals. It can be modified a little bit, but Jesus tweaks it a little bit if you kind of look into it. John the Baptist was revered. Even some of the people that, that were following John are now with Jesus, so they knew what John was capable of. They knew that John was connected with God in a, a unique way. And so they're saying, Jesus, we want that kind of thing. Surely you have that same thing. Teach us like John. And I don't know the disciples' heart. I don't know their intent. The text doesn't give us that. We can't go too far with that. But I do know what Jesus' response is. He says, well, let me teach you. Let me teach you something very powerful. But we have to understand, and I think this is what the, the parable will reinforce for us, is that the formula itself isn't the key. It's the trust that we have in the one behind the formula. So we could pray the Lord's Prayer till we're blue in the face, but the formula isn't going to do anything for us on its own. We can't just get anywhere by rote repetition. We'll pray like Jesus, but that's about it. So there's got to be that trust that somebody's on the other end. That somebody's on the other end who wants our best, in fact. And is in it for us to thrive in this life. So Jesus tells a parable. Let's go to that parable. 11, 5 through 8. Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. You can imagine a situation. We uh, encounter this in our home. Stephanie and I are in bed, asleep. Somebody calls, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. I love them, but out of sheer audacity, I will go and answer because of that sheer audacity of calling in the middle of the night. We get the idea. What we have to understand in this is that um, this isn't, uh, a, a, because this is kind of a foreign example in our context, this isn't an example of a human going to somebody and that somebody represents God in the house. These are two humans in relationship with one another. That's going to be key to understanding the parable. We understand that there's a hospitality conundrum going on here. Uh, in the Middle East, both in the ancient world and today, hospitality is paramount. It's, it's virtually a duty all throughout uh, the Middle East. I know I've spent just a month of my life in the Middle East, and that's about it, in Israel and surrounding area. And everywhere I went, hospitality was key. Um, there were only two times in the month I was there where I wasn't treated with, with the utmost hospitality. One was just an awkward situation that we don't need to go into. And the other, the people were so poor. As I sat in this Bedouin tent... Uh, kind of between Jerusalem and Jericho. They were so poor, they were embarrassed because they couldn't extend full hospitality. They knew they wanted to extend a seat in their tent, but they couldn't make us tea or coffee or the usual hospitable things to do. And they were embarrassed. They were, they were caught in a hospitality conundrum too. It's, it's virtually a duty. And so here you have this. You have somebody who has a friend coming in the middle of the night. They have to treat them with hospitality. You have them going to the neighbor because you can't go to the corner store if you're out of bread. You have to go to a neighbor to get the bread. Everybody's making it on their own. And now that neighbor is put in this conundrum, too, of being hospitable to them. You also have the inconvenience factor, as you can sense with the kids. And the door's locked. This is probably a one-room kind of house 
where you have a lower level where you'd cook the food and maybe the animals would sleep if you had animals and there'd probably be a little like area up that you could sleep in with the kids and they'd probably all be bunched together uh, in the night and so there's a lot of inconvenience that goes with this but because of the sheer audacity of the situation they're going to get up and they're going to help you because you were persistent in that hospitality that you needed to extend. Now, if you combine this with what Jesus says just in a little bit, you know, if the father, uh, if your child asks you for a, a, a fish, are you going to give him a snake? No, you're going to give him a, a fish. If he asks you for an egg, are you going to give him a scorpion? No, you're going to give him an egg. You evil generation, even though you are coated in sin, you're still going to do the right thing. How much more is God going to do the right thing? It's the same thing going on in this parable. Doesn't God care for you even more than this neighbor? who's a friend. So why don't you knock at the door because God is on the other end of the call and desires to know you and desires that relationship as father to child. So as we consider what this looks like as we kind of round out talking about the Lord's Prayer and consider this within the context of what Jesus says in between these two sort of parable moments of ask seek and knock persist call on god knock on the door of your father and see what happens we should understand that as we consider that when when we actually knock on the door then we're not knocking for our own ends we're knocking for the will of the father that's embedded in the lord's prayer jesus is expounding on that if, if we're really doing this, if we're being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in us and we're getting the language from the Lord's Prayer of what that means, then what you ask for when you knock on the door is not going to be something that simply is what you need, although there might be needs that come with that, and we should distinguish between needs and wants. There's a huge difference. Sometimes we cross them over. But ultimately, it's for the glory of God. That's why we're knocking on the door. God, what, can you, what are you providing for me that I need that's going to radiate your glory out and allow your kingdom to come. That's what we're looking for. So consider a couple parts of the Lord's Prayer in context of all that we've seen. We pray something like, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When we pray that, do we believe that God is close, first of all? That if you knock, God's going to respond, or is God so distant that God doesn't even care? God, you're out there, you're holy, you're set apart. Or is that holiness, as we talked about the very first week, supposed to be moving through us? That we're supposed to be an expression of God's holiness working through us because the Holy Spirit is transforming us into the image of Christ. Do you believe God will respond when you knock and that God is actually active and working and alive in you and me through Jesus? If we consider that, we consider the fact that God cares, that God created, that God put us together, and, and I would suggest that God not just put us together, he put us together in his image, and he put us together with a value and desire to do things in this world, to create, to be active, to work. I'm going to contend with you that the things that we do in this world, there could be some caveats to this, but generally speaking, work is a sacred thing. When we go to our jobs, when we go to school, when we do those things, if we pray, God in heaven, hallowed be your name, and that's supposed to be how we function, that the glory of God is supposed to be radiating through us because of the work of the Spirit, because we're being transformed to the image of Christ, then work becomes a sacred moment. 
Is God working through you when you sit down in the office? If, if we ask, uh, if God, show me how I'm impacting others, what are we going to hear from God? Show me how I'm impacting those in my office or those who I go to school with. Is God with me? Is God's name hallowed in those moments? Second thing we could consider in context of the Lord's Prayer and the ask and seek and knock is when we pray both for God's kingdom to come and then we move into give us today our daily bread. Do we actually believe that? Do we actually believe that God has provided all that we need and especially all that we need to do God's kingdom work in this world? It's a hard one because there are lots of things that we put our trust in besides God that have a hold on our heart without realizing it. Idols is the fancy word for those. God, you provide fully. When I pray that, give us today our daily bread. After, right on the same breath of, of your kingdom come, your will be done. As I was reflecting on this this week, I was thinking about a, a, a retreat that our leadership did a few years ago, Journey of Generosity, and it had a lot of really good questions, mostly around giving, but it's around the whole idea of generosity, God's generosity towards us and how that's reflected through us. And one of the questions I, I reflected on this week was, uh, this is from Journey of Generosity, it says, am I striving to use my income, influence, and privileges as God directs, or am I assuming I know what he's asking me for, 10% giving, and can use the rest as I choose? There are a lot of things that have a hold on our heart, but everything we have has been given by God, our daily bread. Are we using all that we've been given, that God's name would be hallowed in us, that your kingdom would come, or are we withholding a lot of that, saying, God, I've given you your part, I've given you the little bit of worship, I've given you the little bit of giving that you need, and now I can do the rest of the things I want to do. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, give us today our daily bread, we're praying, God, it's all you, your name's going to be hallowed in everything I do, and everything I am, in every way, wherever I am. And I believe that you're sufficient, and have given me everything I need to do that. Ask, seek, and knock. When we ask, when we seek, and when we knock, that's what we're asking for. That's what we're seeking. Third, we, all, we pray your kingdom come, but later on in the prayer, then we say, forgive us our sins as we, you, as we forgive those who sin against us. We talked about all of that a few weeks ago. And this struck me then as an extension this week of not simply, am I forgiven? And am I extending that forgiveness? But who should I be praying for that lacks that forgiveness? So forgive us our debts or our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Boy, if I've experienced that, what a joy. But if my neighbor hasn't, what a burden. They're bound in that sin still. And I know we did a sermon series a few weeks ago that I really enjoyed, How to Neighbor. And uh, we had an experience last summer where one of our neighbors invited us over with a bunch of people from the neighborhood for a block party, and they were inspired by their church to do it. So it's been done before. And uh, they invited us over for an evening. We all brought desserts to come over, and it was a load of fun. You stand there and you think, we could do this. 
and it's kind of fun. But furthermore, what's really nice is now I know names. Now I know people I can pray for as I walk by their house. In fact, I was just walking by one of their houses with uh, one of our kids just on Friday and thinking, you know what? I know his name. I'm going to pray for him right now as I walk by. That he would know the forgiveness of God as I know it. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Do we want other people to experience that as well? We're going to turn our attention a little bit to uh, our blessed cards that we do every year. We're going to come to the table in a little bit, too, and, and as we do that, you know, we get to experience the people of God together, but there are a lot of people around our city who don't know that. There's no other path to God except through Jesus Christ, and a lot of our neighbors and friends and coworkers and classmates don't know that reality. Who should we be praying for that they can experience that forgiveness? that they can radiate God's glory in ways that we maybe can't and reach people that we couldn't, but we can reach them. We can hallow God's name in those relationships. Who are those people? I just, as we, as we close on this message and the whole series, I want to say that often I don't actually get a lot of feedback on the sermons and uh, uh, what's going on, but in this particular case, when we've focused on the Lord's Prayer, this is not a compliment to me at all. It's a compliment to the Lord's Prayer and to focusing on, on God's Word in this way and something so familiar. I've gotten a ton of feedback. It's been really fun. It's been fun to have conversations and to hear how God is at work, and I want to just testify this morning that the Spirit is at work in this place, stirring hearts and minds in that process of transformation. Why? Simply because we're praying the Lord's Prayer together. Because people are praying it through the week. They're breaking it up and praying it different, uh, different ways. They're taking it to work and praying it while they're at work, doing their jobs. They're praying like Jesus. We are discovering the heart of God. And many of us are being transformed as a result. Isn't that worthy of an amen this morning? Amen. Thanks be to God.